So this sermon series we're doing is called Foundations, playing off the fact that Jesus gave Peter his nickname, meaning the rock, because it was his confession of faith in Christ that was the foundation upon which the church would be built. And so we're looking to Peter and this letter to see what foundational principles he has to offer us for Christian identity, belief, and practice. And so today, Peter, today, Peter is teaching us something that's easy for us to overlook or miss as 21st century Americans, because he is speaking not to individuals, but a collective, to the church. And so often when we think of, of, of reading and hearing scripture and its admonitions for us, it's for us as individuals, separated from everyone else. So, you know, I just got to figure this out. I'm a living stone. I'm a holy priest or a chosen person. And, and while that's true, Peter is situating this in, in a broader collective identity. And so in order to speak to, to Christians not as a collection of individuals but a community, he uses church architecture as his starting point. And speaking of church architecture, as I'm doing, uh, you can tell a lot about a church by its building, how it was built what it looks like, the kind of ministry that is taking place there. I mean, even if we look at this building itself, it has a lot of stories to tell us about the kind of ministry that was envisioned taking place here. And so uh, this building itself, right, that we're in right now was built in 1924. That's when this sanctuary was constructed in 1924. And, and the main focus, I would say, is, is on the choir, actually, before anything else. I mean, the pulpit is up front, and it's high and elevated, so preaching is important. But actually, congregational singing, it seems to me, was one of the main emphasis of the congregation. And then you have the education building that was built in 1953, and you have the gym that speaks to the importance of athletics and a continuation of this kind of muscular Christianity that, that, that weds together spiritual and physical vitality. And you have the kids' space upstairs that speaks to the importance of children and families in the life of the church. And then you have the kitchen and the fellowship hall downstairs saying that eating meals together is going to be a really important part of the life of this community. And so the way that a church is constructed is how the congregation will be constructed as well. And when it comes to church architecture, the, the, the trend is certainly away from buildings like this. The newer models are more akin to modern auditoriums or theaters, lots of comfortable seats, a stage that enables top-notch production, sound and lights, a large atrium for gathering, coffee shops, bookstores, those aren't uncommon. And so I wonder if we were to rebuild a church here, what would it look like? What would we keep? What would we get rid of? What would we want to do over again? And of course, Peter is not talking about actual church architecture. But there is a reason that, that architecture and building is such a powerful conceptual framework from which Peter can draw to talk about what it means to be in Christian community. And so we're going to analyze if there's any architects in the building this morning. I'm sorry if I uh, tarnish your field or anything like that and say lots of ignorant things. It won't be different from any other Sunday, but uh, I'll just be 
trespassing your ground. But this is the one sort of cliched principle of architecture I know, okay? So the one thing I know about real estate is location, location, location. This is, this is to architecture what that is to real estate, and it's this, form follows function, right? That's the first rule of architecture, form follows function. And so when you're building something, when you're giving shape to it, the first question that you have to ask before building anything is, well, what is the building for? Because then once you know what the building is for, you can have an idea of how you're supposed to build it. Just like when they thought, well, we're going to build a church. What's its function? How should we build it? That, that, that said something. And so we're going to look at, at this passage, and we're going to look at it using these rules. Function, form, and foundation. So first, the function. What does Peter teach us about what the church is for? What is its purpose? And this is one of those delightfully, deceptively simple questions. That's so basic, but my guess is if many of us were stopped on the street and someone said, well, what's the purpose of the church? What's the, what's the function of a church? We would find that we sort of had already... we maybe would just generate some sort of word salad as we tried to generate an answer that spoke to, to the deep and manifold reality of what is the purpose of the church. But Peter gives us two points in terms of the foundational principles for understanding what is the mission, the function, the purpose of the church. And we see those in verses 5 and 9. And so the church's function is in verse 5, to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. And then in verse 9, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So those are the two functions of the church that Peter gives us, offering spiritual sacrifices and proclaiming God's excellencies. In other words, the dual purpose function of the church that we see in this passage is worship and witness. That's what Peter gives us, worship and witness. That's the function of the church. That's why the church exists, to do, to do those two things. And if we're not doing those two things, we're not being the kind of community that God has called us to be. So job one of the church is to worship. That's why our central gathering each and every week is on Sunday morning where we offer spiritual sacrifices to God. And this term spiritual sacrifices is... is all-encompassing. It includes things like praying prayers and singing songs. But spiritual sacrifice is, is broader than that. It's broader than just a, a horizontal, or I'm sorry, a vertical dimension, but it includes all of our lives as well on every axis. It includes viewing our entire lives as acts of worship, devoting and dedicating all that we have and all that we are to God's service. So that means our jobs are places for spiritual sacrifices, even if they're monotonous and boring. Doing them well with integrity and faithfully, that's a spiritual sacrifice. It means stewarding our resources, viewing all of our money, the places where we live, the gifts and talents that we have, those are all gifts from God to be used in his service. So spiritual sacrifices is this, is this all-encompassing term of dedicating all that we have and all that we are to God and God's service. So that's worship. But the church also exists for 
witness, to testify to the world and each other the amazing grace of God that's moved us from darkness to light. And this language is the language of conversion, of baptism, of being born again. But, but Peter is doing throughout this letter, he's drawing from, from the rich depths of Scripture to talk about what it is he's talking about. And so this language of moving from dark to light is, is Exodus language. So in, in the book of Exodus, um, it talks about God's people being taken, the, the Jewish people would talk about themselves moving from darkness to light. Literally, one of the plagues that covered the land uh, of Egypt was darkness. And then the people of God were called out to freedom following a pillar of fire. And this move from darkness to light, this was Peter's own conversion experience, right? That, that, that Jesus had, had been in the tomb in darkness, then emerged on that first Sunday to resurrection life, and he took someone like Peter who had utterly failed and was in total darkness and appeared to him as the risen Lord, darkness to light. And as the church, this is the story that we continue to tell week after week, Sunday after Sunday. It's the story of Exodus and Easter. It's what we read in our Bibles. It's what we hear in our sermons. It's what we remember at this table. And it's what we're sent out into the world to live. The story that we share in our testimonies, our faith journeys, whatever you want to call them. How God worked in our lives through Jesus Christ to move us from darkness to light. And if you're in a dark place yourself or you know someone who is in a dark place, this is the story that they need to hear. That God in and through Jesus Christ calls us out of darkness and brings us in to the light. And, and it's a story that never gets old. So that's the function of the church, worship and witness. But now we turn from function to form. Okay, so if that's the purpose, if that's the mission, why the church exists, then what form will the church take in order to fulfill its mission? And there's three ways that I see it in this passage. And, and the first is where Peter says that you are called living stones being built into a spiritual house. And so Peter is here using temple language. And his point was that whereas before God's presence was located in the temple in Jerusalem, now in light of Christ's death and resurrection, it is to be found in the community of people in whom God's spirit dwells. And so Christians are the new temple. That's what we are right here. And the thing about being living stones built up together is that it speaks of interdependence over our independence. And far too often people fall into this trap of thinking, well, all that matters is me and my relationship with God and sort of having a group of other people around me, that's kind of an optional add-on, additional extra that's nice to have. But there's no such thing, according to Peter, as a lone wolf Christian. A Christian without a, a church community is an utter contradiction. That's like saying one brick saying that it is an entire building. And so in order for us to fulfill the function God has for us, we need each other. And this interdependence of the church is a feature. It's not a bug. Especially in our culture. I was reading on NPR 
the other day this uh, new loneliness study that happened. And so uh, it was a study, and they basically asked people all these questions, and it was an 80-point scale. And if you scored 43 or above, you qualified as, as having some degree of loneliness. And so the average American score uh, was, was 44 on this scale. So 56% of, of Americans, according to this research, scored as lonely. And the surprising thing about this, though, was that the younger you are, actually, the higher your score was in terms of loneliness. I think that the youngest cohort, the average score was 48, so much more lonely um, than people who are older. And we know that loneliness has all kinds of terrible physical effects. If you're lonely, you get sicker, you, you die sooner. It's, loneliness is, is a terrible thing, physically and spiritually. And I think when we look at this passage, what we see, this concept of being living stones, interdependent, right, needing one another to, to stand and hold together, that this is the very thing that the church has to offer the world at this moment. Connection and community, a place to be known. And so if we want to reach the world, what, 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 what does it need now? Desperately is rich, rich, thick, real, genuine community. Because that's how we're supposed to be built. We need each other to stand together. So that's one form of the church, as living stones being built up in interdependent community. And the second form we see in this passage is of a holy priesthood or kingdom of priests. And so if you grew up in a Protestant church or maybe you learned this in history class that one of the hallmarks of the Reformation was the priesthood of all believers. That's what Martin Luther famously taught. And it was this notion that Luther attacked basically the privileges that the medieval Catholic church had established for itself where the world was divided between the spiritual estate and the temporal estate. And the spiritual estate was valued over the temporal one. And Luther said, no, in light of our baptism and faith in Christ, we're all priests. We all have access to God and we all exist to serve one another. And Luther said this, he said, for whoever comes out of the water of baptism can boast that he is already consecrated priest, bishop, and pope. Although, of course, it is not seemly that just anybody should exercise such an office. And so Luther is, is taking this to the extreme. He's saying, if you're baptized, you're already just as much a priest as the pope himself. But the question is, okay, so if we're all priests, if, if you're baptized and, and you all have the same access, what does it mean for this form to shape our life together? And the thing about Old Testament priests was they, 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 they had special access and they made sacrifices. That's what set them apart. And when it came to access, you know, this was like literally there were portions of the temple where only priests could go inside the sanctuary and then the, the high priest in the Holy of Holies once a year. But when Jesus dies on the cross, one of the things that happens, the Gospels tell us, is that the, temple of the, the curtain in the temple is torn in two, and so the most holy place is no longer separated by this veil, and so it signifies this access to God. And so one of the things it means to be a priest is to share this access with others, to, to bring the people to God and God to the people. And in fact, the Latin word for priest is pontifex, which means bridge builder. 
So a priest is a bridge builder between people and God and God and the people. And so as Christians, together we have this job of building bridges. And I think one of the, the most important and simple ways we can do this is to intercede with and for each other. To be praying together and to be praying for each other. That's how we can use our priestly access to bring people to God and God to people. And then the next thing that we get to do together as a community of priests is offer these spiritual sacrifices together. Because we know that together we can have an impact far beyond what one individual can do. And the illustrations of this principle are endless. So a few weeks ago, we had a work day here at the church. We call it Church Beautification Day because that sounds so much better than a work day, you know? But there is like, uh, there was, it was overwhelming when you sort of look in the basement and you just see some of the things that you need to do. And, and I would look at it some days and it would hurt my heart. You know, I would just not go in the basement because it was scary, the things you would see and the piles of junk. It was, Anna, it was scary, okay? I was scared. But we just got a group of 20-some-odd people together and threw down, and things happened. This very weekend, there's still a group of men who are up at uh, Dave and Sharon Carlson's cabin getting it ready for the church retreat this summer. And Dave just got a new parcel of land right next to his, right on the Mississippi River up there in Palisade. And, and the idea was we're going to clear some of this land to make it better for camping this summer. And so we got up there on Friday night, and Dave showed us the vision for this land. And I looked at someone else, and I was like, what is it? like this is the craziest thing I've ever heard it's over I mean this is like overgrown with trees and brambles and bushes like we're not going to get like one tenth of this done this is going to be horrible but then Mark was there too he, 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 he was throwing down and like we were laughing like okay we'll get a little bit done in like two hours we essentially got all of the work that he had for the entire weekend done because we were doing it Together, we got the work done so fast that when John Hupp came up because he was going to help us work, there was no more work for him to do except cut wood for the sauna, <laughs> which is the best job of all. But it just goes to show that, that, that when we collectively pool our gifts, talents, resources together, the impact of that can redound so much farther than when we're working alone. I mean, it's sort of like an, oh, duh, okay, of course we all agree with that principle. But when we see it in practice, it is so incredibly powerful and astounding each and every time. And so to be formed into a community of priests means that we are a community who are interceding together and for others, and we are collectively pooling our gifts and resources so God can use those, leverage those to have an impact far beyond what we could do ourselves. And then the last form that we see this, the church taking in this passage is when Peter says that you are a chosen people a people for God's own possession. And I, I love the King James Version of the end of verse 9. He says that you are a peculiar people. Peculiar. And I think that's a compliment. And I think where we can't forget this, and, and, and this, Peter is, again, he's pulling this from Israel language. You know, the, the, the Jewish people still to this day are known as, as the chosen people. 
And it harkens back all the way to in Deuteronomy where God is talking to the people and he says, Israel, out of all the nations of the earth, I could have chosen any, but I chose you not because you're numerous or great or anything special about you. I chose you because I chose you because I love you. And I think where this is so applicable to the church is that we can never forget that we're a community of the chosen, not the choice. The chosen, not the choice. Choice people are, you know, people who have got it all together and figured out, and they are, you know, wealthy and successful in the eyes of the world. So they can feel good about themselves. But the church is a community of the chosen and not the choice. And so if, as a church, we are not a cast of characters in the best possible way, then we're not being the church. We're a community of chosen characters. And because we're chosen and not choice, we have no grounds for pride. Because on the contrary, what we see in Scripture again and again and again is that God chooses to accomplish his purposes, not the wise, not the mighty, not the noble, not the successful, but the foolish, the weak, and despised to accomplish his purposes. And so if you are here today, welcome to this community of beloved losers. Because we're not anything special because of who we are, but because of who Jesus has made us. And that God would choose a, a group of people like us to be his temple, and to be his priests, to fulfill his mission of worship and witness here on earth. That's what's so amazing about grace is that he uses people like us. Chosen, not choice. So form follows function. But the last point, of course, is all this, is none of this matters unless we tend to the foundation on which it's all built, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. We are what we are because we are built upon him. And in ancient buildings, actually, the most important stone of all was the, the foundation stone. You laid that stone first, and it had to be, you know, just square and just so, so that when you laid the other stones on top of it, it, it would build into a straight and, and, and secure structure. And so finding this stone was, was the most important thing, and, and cutting it just so. And we see that without Christ as our foundation, the structure, everything we build upon it cannot stand. And so as a church, as a community, before worrying about what you know, we're called to do and how we're called to do it, we can never forget or neglect that if we're not built on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ and his word, this entire edifice and effort will fall flat because no other foundation can support the weight of glory that we're meant to bear. And a lot of times we, we, we forget this. We think that there's other, some other foundation we can turn to that will, you know, guarantee us success. And so we build our efforts on something else. You know, we, we, we try to build the foundation of the church on relevance. That if we can somehow capture the zeitgeist, the spirit of this age, then, then we'll be successful. People will like us. We try good deeds. If we can just do enough good stuff, then we will be successful. Or we try to build upon the foundation of excellence. Well, if we just have the best programs and the best worship and the best teaching and the best preaching, that's a solid foundation. If we can build it on that, then we will rock it. 
But when we build on anything else besides Jesus, what we build will tumble like a Jenga tower. But if we build upon him, there is no storm that we will not be able to withstand. And very appropriately to this passage, I close with these words from that great hymn, The Church is One Foundation. The church is one foundation, is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came, he sought her to be his holy bride, and with his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please pray with me. Lord God, we thank you so much for the function that you've given us and for forming us into a people who can fulfill that. And God, you are our foundation. And we pray this day that all that we do and all that we are would be built upon that. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.